Jeremiah 36. If we aren't careful, we, we can come to this passage and we can see the history of it. By the way, today is not August 6th. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. I am, I'm going to go, I didn't sleep long enough last night. I went to bed too late, got up too early. It is August 6th. All this talk of September, I was thinking, oh, we're September now. Uh, it is August 6th. My slides are good. I'm not going to correct myself anymore. I'm not good. No, clearly not. If we aren't careful, we can read this passage, Jeremiah 36, as merely historical. We, we can come to it. it it's, it's, it's in a prophet's book, but it's, it's narrative. It's, it is, there is some prophecy in here, but it's, we could just read it and say, oh, this is what Jeremiah told the folks at that time. And the history is important. We need to know it. I'm, gonna, I'm always going to talk about history. I'm going to talk about dates and people and what was going on around uh, the occurrence. But if, we, if we're not careful, we focus on that, uh, and, and when we miss other very important parts. Historically, this moment, this uh, prophecy, this presentation of Scripture to the people, to the officials, and to the king, was Judah's last opportunity to repent. This was it. They would have no more opportunity after this. So, historically, it is important. This moment is important. And then, of course, as we read it, we, we do sometimes, I do sometimes, we, we scoff at those that ignore the cleared, ignored the clear message of God. We read it and go, how did they miss this? You know, we've been reading Jeremiah all this time. We got the message, so much so that we get tired of reading the message and we get tired of preaching the message. Repent or judgment, repent or judgment, repent or judgment. I mean, it just gets old after a while. How did they miss it? Well, y'all, we, we miss clear messages from God all the time. We're in no place to say to the people, how could you do that? Because we're no, we're no better. Uh, this passage isn't here to puff us up and make us feel better. Well, at least we hear from God better than the Judahites did. No, that's not the way it works. We come to the passage, we read the historical narrative, we, we ask some questions about time because Jeremiah, I, I think I told you at the beginning, Jeremiah is not chronological. Chronologically, as it happened in history, Jeremiah 36 happened before Jeremiah 35, some mm, six years before, as a matter of fact. It's not chronological. Chronology was not his point. History was important, but history wasn't his point. As we come to this historical narrative, what we see is the history and what God is saying about his messengers and his messages. There's a, a meta-narrative, a narrative above the narrative. If um, we would call it uh, maybe a, a God's story above what we were doing in Earth's story. Not that they are separated at all, but there's something bigger going on here than just the narrative itself. In this passage, 
we are learning about God. We're not learning just about Jeremiah, just about Judah, just about the king, just about the people or the officials. We're learning about God. And y'all, that's the truth of every scripture passage we read. It may say a lot about what's going on in the world at the time with the people it's written to, the things that are happening, but it's about God. That's the purpose. It's not about me. It's not about you. We're, we are the intent behind much of it, but who's the star of the story? God. At first, I thought that was somebody screaming when I... That, that's what, it, okay, so y'all thought it too. I was like, what in the world? Okay, for those of you online, who it was a siren going by. It just was a weird sound right at first. Okay, uh, so we are learning about God, which leads us to the title, True and Permanent. Title of today's message is True and Permanent. We'll get to what that means right now. Our theme Regardless of our response, God's word is powerfully true and eternally permanent. As I said, we can't miss the history here. We can't miss what was going on, what God was doing among his people. That's important. Judge, learning about judgment, learning about God's patience and mercy and grace, but his finality when it comes time to you should have repented by now, that is all stuff we need to learn. So we need to get that. But I think the broader message, the, the bigger, the driven home message here is that God's word is powerfully true and eternally permanent. Read Jeremiah 36 with me this morning. We're going to read the whole thing because we got to get this big picture in our heads. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words I have spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, and all the nations from the first time I spoke to you during Josiah's reign until today. Perhaps when the house of Judah hears about all the disaster I am planning to bring on them, each one of them will turn from his evil way. Then I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. So Jeremiah summoned Baruch, son of Neriah. At Jeremiah's dictation, Baruch wrote on a scroll all the words the Lord had spoken to Jeremiah. Then Jeremiah commanded Baruch, I am restricted, I cannot enter the temple of the Lord, so you must go and read from the scroll which you wrote at my dictation. The words of the Lord in the hearing of the people of, at the temple of the Lord on a day of fasting. Read his words in the hearing of all the Judeans who are coming from their cities. Perhaps their petition will come before the Lord, and each one will turn from his evil way, for the anger and fury that the Lord has pronounced against this people are intense. So Baruch, son of Neriah, did everything the prophet Jeremiah had commanded him. At the Lord's temple, he read the Lord's words from the scroll. In the fifth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month, all the people of Jerusalem and all those coming in from Judah's cities into Jerusalem proclaimed a fast before the Lord. Then at the Lord's temple in the chamber of Gemariah, son of Shaphan, the scribe, in the upper courtyard, at the opening of the new gate of the Lord's temple, in the hearing of all the people, Baruch read Jeremiah's words from the scroll. When Micaiah, son of Gemariah, son of Shaphan, heard all the words of the Lord from the scroll, he went down to the scribe's chamber in the king's palace. All the officials were sitting there. Elishama, the scribe, Deliah, son of Shemaiah, 
Elnathan, son of Achbor, Gemariah, son of Shephan, Zedekiah, son of Hananiah, and all the other officials. Micaiah reported to them all the words he had heard from Baruch, read from the scroll in the hearing of the people. Then all the officials sent word to Baruch through Jehudi, son of Nethaniah, son of Shelemiah, son of Cushi, saying, Bring the scroll that you read in the hearing of the people and come. So Baruch, son of Neriah, in case you've forgotten who his daddy was, took the scroll and went to them. They said to him, Sit down and read it in our hearing. So Baruch read it in their hearing. When they had heard all the words, they turned to each other in fear and said to Baruch, We must surely tell the king all these things. Then they asked Baruch, Tell us how did you write all these words? At his dictation? Baruch said to them, At his dictation, he recited all these words to me while I was writing on the scroll in ink. The official said to Baruch, You and Jeremiah must hide until no one where you are. Then after depositing the scroll in the chamber of Elishama, the scribe, the the officials came to the king at the courtyard and reported everything in the hearing of the king. The king sent Jehudi to get the scroll, and he took it from the chamber of Elishama, the scribe. Jehudi then read it in the hearing of the king and all the officials who were standing by the king. Since it was the ninth month, the king was sitting in his winter quarters with a fire burning in front of him. As soon as Jehudi would read three or four columns, Jehoiakim would cut the scroll with the scribe's knife and throw the columns into the fire in the hearth until the entire scroll was consumed by the fire in the hearth. As they heard all these words, the king and all of his servants did not become terrified or tear their clothes. Even though Elnathan, Deliah, and Gemariah had urged the king not to burn the scroll, he did not listen to them. Then the king commanded Jeremiel, the, son, the king's son, Sariah, son of Azrael, and Shelemiah, son of Abdael, to seize the scribe Baruch and the prophet Jeremiah, but the Lord hid them. After the king had burned the scroll and the words Baruch had written at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, Take another scroll, and once again write, it on, the original wor- write on it the original words, that were on the original scroll that King Jehoiakim of Judah burned. You are to proclaim concerning King Jehoiakim of Judah, this is what the Lord says. You have burned the scroll, asking, why have you written on it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and cause it to be without people or animals? Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning King Jehoiakim of Judah. He will have no one to sit on David's throne, and his corpse will be thrown out to be exposed to the heat of the day, heat of day, and the frost of night. I will punish him, his descendants, and his officers for their iniquity. I will bring on them, on the residents of Jerusalem, and on the people of Judah, all the disaster which I warned them about, but they did not listen. Then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch, son of Neriah, the scribe, And he wrote on it at Jeremiah's dictation all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, Judah's king, had burned in the fire, and many other words like them were added. So you see how our tendency could be to just read through that long chapter, all those difficult-to-pronounce names that we don't know who they are. Most of them are never mentioned again as a matter of fact. We, we don't know anything about them other than just what it says right here. And go, okay, Jeremiah had a message, the king didn't believe it, and we move on. And that is where we will, we will mess up. We will 
miss the power, miss the lesson, many of the lessons that God is teaching us from this passage. Remember, our big idea, regardless of our response, God's Word is powerfully true and eternally permanent. Number one, we see in this passage a message of mercy. God knows the future. He knows what's going to happen. He knows the response. He knows all of it. And yet, one more time, God is saying, here's your opportunity to repent. Here's your opportunity to turn. This would be in 605, thereabout, B.C. Uh, Babylon is the big dog now. They, they are on the horizon, literally. Uh, they have defeated Egypt, and Egypt was Judah's protector. Judah was a vassal of Egypt at this time, and they were depending on Egypt to protect them from Babylon. But they just got whooped up on at the Battle of Carchemish, and Egypt is turning tail, uh, and they're going back home to the Nile River. That's 605 B.C. Now, it would be seven years before the first deportation of Jews from Jerusalem. The, the one where Jeremiah writes chapter 29, where he says, build houses, have families, plant crops, etc., etc., to that first group that has been deported in 597. And this is, as I said earlier, this is before chapter 35, because chapter 35 happened in 598 B.C. So this is six years or so before that. Historically, Babylon is there. They, they, they can't see them from Jerusalem, but they can feel them. They know what's happening. And once again, God shows up and says, perhaps they'll repent. Twice, God says, perhaps they'll repent to Jeremiah. And then Jeremiah says to Baruch, perhaps they will repent. Maybe this time they will hear the message. It has been hundreds of years since the kingdom split and they both started going after other gods. 350-ish, 325-ish years. Prophet after prophet after prophet. King after king who tried to do the right thing, but generally most of them didn't do enough. They all basically failed until we get to Josiah. And God is still giving a message of mercy and grace and repentance. Babylon is at the door, and yet the door is still barred shut to Babylon if the people will just hear the message and repent. Now, verse 3, God wasn't wondering. Perhaps it says they will repent. He wasn't wondering. It, it's, it's more of a, a parent to a child. Well, you know, maybe this will happen. Well, we know what that means. There's something the kid's got to do in order for the thing to happen that they either want or don't want or whatever. So, you know, perhaps it might. 
but it depended on the people. And as we read Scripture, judgment is usually slow. God is slow to anger. God is slow to judgment. God gives opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent in my life, in your life, in the lives of Judah. And he's particularly talking about leadership repenting. Because we see what happened with Josiah. When Josiah repented and turned, they found the book of Deuteronomy. He cleaned everything out, fully cleaned everything out. The people, for a while, followed. But he got killed, his son didn't follow his way, and boom, as soon as some leadership said, we ain't got to do that no more, everybody else went, finally, and they started following other gods too. And God says to him, write down everything you said since I called you. 22 years of messages. 22 years of sermons. Messages that had... Uh, messages he had been ridiculed and abused for, messages that had been repeatedly ignored by the people he was preaching to, messages that had not changed in 22 years. Repent or be destroyed. Repent or be judged. Repent or judgment is coming. Over and over, the same message for 22 years. I mean, he could have sat down and said, Repent or be destroyed. All right, did it. Baruch, write this down. Repent or be destroyed. But instead, he goes over these 22 years, and we have very likely chapters 1 through 25, 1 through 22. We're not real sure. Those are probably the messages he wrote down, chapters 1 through, let's just say, 25. When he sat and he recited to Baruch, that's what he wrote down. Incidentally, a few years back, 20 years ago, I think, or so, maybe even a little longer, in the ancient Near East, they would seal a scroll. You've seen movies where they've done this with wax and a a, a, a ring, a seal, a letter with with wax, and and that wax seal means don't open it unless you're somebody important. They have found, they call them bulla, they're, they're clay seals, not wax seals. They're about the size of a coin. Um, they have found a number of them, if I remember correctly, that say Baruch, son of, I'm going to get his daddy's name wrong, Nerai, Neriah. Baruch, son of Neriah. And they found it in layers from uh, 600-ish B.C., Almost with 100% certainty, these are the bulla, the bulle, the, the, the seals of this Baruch, writing letters from Jeremiah. Oh, our kids have a, our children, when they get baptized, get the uh, Explorer Bible, is that what we, it's called? There's a whole picture in there about the Baruch, son of Neriah, bulla that they have found and explaining it. I mean, that is like, okay, get this in your head. We found this thing that this guy had his, had his hand on or his little seal on. He, he, he made the mud and stuck it on there. Jeremiah's secretary. Y'all, that's how close we are to this message. That's just cool, okay? Uh, that, that, that's not even a part of the sermon. 
Jeremiah collects, dictates, remembers? Crazy. Maybe he had notes. Ask me to recite the messages that I've preached in the last 22 years. The answer is no. I couldn't do last week's. And yet, Jeremiah, probably with notes, he recites these things. Or, because his messages were not prepared from God's word and commentary. I mean, he didn't have to sit down and go, no, okay, I'm going to do, you know, but with God's help, the Holy Spirit working in him, this was direct communication from God. So maybe God did it that way. Who knows? doesn't matter. The fact is that every message, all 25 chapters that we have, all 22 years of his ministry said that repentance was, was required. Repentance was required from everyone. It, it, the first, perhaps, they will turn in, chap, in verse 3 is talking about particularly the leaders. But in verse 7, it's talking about the people. Maybe they will, maybe they'll all turn when they finally hear all 22 years of messages told in one sitting. Well, we see some, some response to that, but only in number 3. Number two this morning is reading number one. Now, this is going to get really confusing. Point number two is reading number one. The first time the message gets read. The first time Baruch shows up with the message of the temple to read it. And the response is passivity. They're passive. So it's about a year later that Baruch reads this. Don't know if it took them a year to dictate all the messages. Probably not. It was very specific that they are to be read at a time of fasting, so that's what they waited for. But can you imagine God telling you to do something, or just being told to do something, not even God. Your boss comes to you and says, hey, I need you to prepare these reports that cover the last 22 years of what you've been doing for the company. Right now, I need you to prepare those. Get to work on them. Okay, great. You work, you're diligent, however long it takes. You go to your boss. Here you go. Perfect. Thank you. And a year later, he comes back and says, about those reports. What reports? That's kind of what happened here. That could have been Jeremiah's response or Baruch's response. Jeremiah, we wrote this stuff a year ago. Are we ever going to use it for anything? A year later, it comes up. Can you imagine that? I hope you can because we are merely obedient. We just do what God says. And God worries about the timing. God gets to decide if this that I did matters more now or matters more later. And y'all, this is the burden, for lack of a better term, of preachers. I, I've probably told you before that I would love for messages on a Sunday morning to elicit an instantaneous response from every person here where every person goes, wow, I hadn't thought of that. I will directly now change everything about my life and follow this message completely. 
And occasionally that happens. That's usually a salvation moment. Sometimes, and, and, and I would even say frequently, though not like every Sunday, we get moments of that. We get glimmers, we get sparks, and oh, I hadn't thought of that. But what we understand as preachers, as pastors, is that, and I've used this analogy before, it is a lifelong slow change. Uh, I, I think I quoted Eugene Peterson a, a few months ago. Um, it's a uh, long obedience in the same direction. That's what the Christian life is, a long obedience in the same direction. I've, I've in, in the past used uh, paper as an example, especially Bible paper. These little thin, they call them onion skin sheets, that is nothing. It, it, I mean, if you, if you zoom in with a microscope or a whatever, a magnifying glass, this paper has a flat edge to it. And, and you can feel the flat edge, but unless your eyes are super good, you don't see that flat edge just on that piece of paper. But if I stack up enough of those pieces of paper, that is a formidable flat edge. You could hurt somebody with that. I'm not talking about the Bible, I'm just talking about the paper. Hurt somebody with the Bible too, but that's a different story. That, that is, that's major. It's, it's the layers, one upon the other, that gives paper its heft, its weight. A, a newer analogy that I've seen float around a number of times is that you don't remember, I don't remember, most of the meals I've eaten. Oh, they're the big ones, the fancy ones, the really good ones, the, the hamburgers we got at Black Sheep in Springfield, Missouri. There are some that I remember, yeah. Um, uh, the steaks we've gotten at Ruth's Chris. You know, the, but how many thousands of meals have I eaten in my 48 years? How, how many thousands of meals have some of y'all eaten in your 90 years? A lot. And you might remember that you had a lot of peanut butter and jelly, but you don't remember when you had peanut butter and jelly, probably. Can't tell me which time. Most of those meals didn't make an impression on you. But you're bigger than you were. Some of us are too big. Clearly, the meals had an effect. Regular intake of these meals. Regular obedience to God. And then one day, because we've got the stack of paper, one day, because we've regularly eaten the meals, we grow up to be a football player, or we grow up to be able to do whatever it is uh, we're supposed to do. We have the, the, the stack, the, the foundational strength to support us. Because we were obedient over and over and over again. Because Jeremiah was obedient, Baruch was obedient, when God finally needed the message, finally needed those compiled messages, they were ready. What if, and this is a fairly dumb what if, but what if Jeremiah and Baruch had said, have you heard about anybody calling for a, National fast, a day of prayer or anything? No. 
let's just wait till they, we, we hear about it, then we'll write all that stuff down. No point in doing it until then, right? Yeah, sounds good to me. It's not what they did. They were obedient. And then eventually, somebody called a day of fasting. Doubt it was the king? Maybe. It doesn't say who did it. Just said, actually says the people called it. But it only happened in the most dire circumstances. Remember the history I just told you. Babylon's at the door. They are out there and they are coming. So they call this day of fasting that happens in the most dire circumstances. Some of these people, most of these people probably had not heard the messages before. And they get up there and, and Baruch reads the messages and we get no response. Preachers can relate to that too. No response is recorded. They have a message from the prophet. The prophet they've probably heard about. Word has probably gotten around Judah about this guy named Jeremiah that's t selling all this stuff. I mean, he was telling them to surrender to the enemy. That's not what you tell a country to do. This is delivered in the temple complex. At, I mean, that's why it says at this gate, by this door, in this guy's room, it is to get the, the clear picture for those who were reading it early on, especially of where he was. This was authoritative, and it was on a day of fasting. And what was the point of fasting? To hear from God. And Jeremiah gets up with God's word. Hey, y'all, this is what you came to hear today. Every Sunday morning, every preacher in the country gets up and says, Hey, y'all, this is what you came to hear today. And what do we do with the message? The people of Judah were passive. They were supposed to come seeking the Lord and expecting him to speak. And when he showed up and spoke, crickets. Chirp, 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 chirp. And I think it might have even been worse than passivity. Passivity says that you just kind of sit there and let something happen to you. Apathy says you don't just sit there and let it happen to you. You don't care about it happening at all. And that seems to be apathy here. They knew why they were there, but they just didn't care. Are we Judah? Are we the people showing up on Sunday morning to sit through the message? Not to hear the message, but to sit through it passively or even worse, apathetically. Reading number three. Yeah, and I realize I'm way behind. Reading number, point number three, reading number two, fear. The officials who were the, cat, the king's cabinet, one of them hears the message. They go, he goes back and says, hey, y'all, y'all need to hear this message too. Tells the whole council about it. They want to hear it. All these names that I read through, all that lineage that gives credibility to the message. It's this person, son of this person. Doesn't matter. Y'all don't know who they are. The first readers of this, the first hearers of this, they knew who they were. Oh, it was him. Oh, it was that guy. Oh, even Baruch. He was probably royal, uh, uh, at least of the royal family. These are important people hearing these messages and responding in this, this way. 
Their response to the message was they, were, they looked at each other and they were afraid. Now, my first question was, what were they afraid of? Just reading that verse and stopping. What were they f- afraid of? Were they scared of the king? Clearly, I think they were because they hid the scroll and they told Bar- Baruch and Jeremiah to hide. Go somewhere, we're about to tell the king this. But they were at least sympathetic to the message because they went to tell the king and they told Baruch to hide, Baruch and Jeremiah to hide and they hid the scroll. They knew if we tell the king something bad's going to happen, but this needs to go to him. Was it fear of God? I think that's very likely as well. They'd probably heard these messages before, at least some of them. Probably heard about others that they weren't in uh, positions to hear originally. But imagine, if you can, hearing all of these messages together. You've heard them Uh, You know, I don't know how often he spoke. If it's only the 22, 25 chapters that we have uh, in 22 years, is is that one message a year? It's possible. Well, you hear one message a year, that, oh gosh, I forgot what you said last year. But to hear all those 22 years condensed into one long message, that had to have been a gut punch. Looking at each other, how could we have missed this? Has he really been saying this for 22 years? We're speculating at this point, but based on their actions, that's something like what was going on. Because later on, their fear is contrasted with the king's lack of fear. They were afraid. We find out the king was not. And we find out that they urged him not to cut up the scroll. So they understood the importance here. They understood what was going on. But you know what? We have no record of repentance. The people heard were passive and maybe even just apathetic and no repentance. The officials heard and were fearful, but we have no record of repentance. I will give them this benefit, though. Scripture tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So maybe they're on the road to it. Sadly, it won't be enough. Reading number three, point number four, rejection. Finally, it gets to the king. Baruch doesn't read it. Jeremiah doesn't read it. It's Jehudi, one of his officials, that reads it. And he's the one that's already heard it. So now he's going through it again. And you can, if he's already been afraid, uh, been, been uh, uh, scared by it, now he's reading it to the king. So he's double fearful. Uh, this message, this ain't good. And I've got to give this message to the king. Boy, this is a mess. And Jehoiakim doesn't merely reject it. Every little bit, as Jehudi reads it, the king takes the scroll, and the scrolls could be as much as 30 feet long. They're about this wide, but incredibly long. And he tears up, cuts off a column, cuts off three columns, four columns. Nope, don't like that bit. Nope, don't like that bit. And before you scoff at Jehoiakim, your Bible may be whole right now, but every one of us have cut out the parts we don't like. We just don't obey it. Well, he didn't mean it that way. He just didn't mean it for me. That's for somebody else. We've cut it. We didn't have a, a pen knife to do it with, but we've cut it out. 
Now, why does he do this? I mean, why he doesn't merely reject it. He cuts it up. He burns it, throws it in the fire. Is this theater? In, in part, yeah, he's making a show. Does he think it's going to stop Jeremiah's words? Well, they've tried to put him in prison before. They've thrown him in a cistern. They've done all sorts of things to try to shut him up. So, yeah, there's some thought that we can get rid of this message. But do they really think they're going to stop God's word? Does he really think, well, if I can just burn this, then Babylon's not going to overthrow us. I'm going to control God in some way. Surely he doesn't think that. He probably does, and don't call me Shirley. This is exactly what they thought, that they could somehow ignore and therefore control God. We see from Jehoiakim and his servants, no fear and no repentance. He doesn't listen to his advisors, and he seeks to shut down Jeremiah. Since people go arrest him. Go take care of this. And in verses 27 through 31, we see the judgment for rejection. We see the judgment for passivity, and we see the judgment for fear without action. Verses 27 through 31, directly to Jehoiakim, comes death, dishonor, and no, no lineage as, uh, of, of kings after him. One son serves three months. And that's it. And then it's the end of his, his reign. But we see because of passivity and fear without action, we see certain destruction for Judah. God says, it's going to happen. It's done now. It's it. This is it. It's over. People, there is always judgment for the rejection of God's word. Always. If we, if I, if you reject God's word at any point, there is judgment for that rejection. It doesn't matter which part you're cutting out. It doesn't matter how uh, insignificant you believe that part to be. You will be judged for that. And it may be consequences, life consequences. Well, I don't think getting drunk matters. Well, the wreck you just got in does prove that it matters. The cirrhosis of the liver that you have does prove that it matters. The consequences. The, the family you have lost because of your alcoholism does prove that it matters. And I'm not picking on drinking. That was just the, literally the first thing that came to my head. We could do that with any sin, anything that we want to say. And I'm, Lord, I don't know if I, I figure i got to do this. I'm not saying drinking is a sin either. I'm not saying you can't. Just bear with me here. I'm making a point. Pick anything that you say, but I want to do that. You will be judged for that. There will be consequences. There's always judgment for the rejection of God's word because it is true. It is powerfully true. And when we as a church, when we as believers have been told from God's word how to live, how to behave, how to unify as a church, how to live in the world, how to live as a church, how to behave in the world, how to behave in the church, how to witness in the world, how to witness as a unified church, when we have been told those things but we don't obey, can we expect anything less than judgment? talking to John Watson this morning before the service. We were just talking about the sound and lighting and the, just what we've been through in, in, in my seven years here and the, 
the, the, the, the trials, but how we've come out on the other side of them. And in many, many, many ways we have been blessed for coming through those trials. Probably the biggest, most obvious one is Hurricane Laura, but then a, a $6 million remodel, basically, an upgrade on our facilities because of it. And we look at that and we go, that is a tremendous blessing from a horrible reality. But if we don't use that blessing for God's glory and for his kingdom, why did we even get it? And worse yet, what is he going to do with it later? Because it's his, not ours. And it is freely his to take as well as to give. If we are not being obedient, if we don't obey, we can expect judgment from the Lord for our disobedience, for our ignoring of Scripture. The question for us as a church is, will we be like the people, passive and uncaring? Well, that message wasn't for me, or I don't like that message, or I don't like the way that message was presented, or whatever. Will we be like the officials, fearful? Ooh, that sounds horrible. What's for lunch? Fearful and unrepentant? Fearful and uh, exacting no change? Or will we be like Jehoiakim, stiff-necked and rebellious? I don't care that that's what God says. I don't care that I'm supposed to be this way. I wish I'd brought, now I think about it, of course, I wish I'd brought an old, worn-out, torn-up Bible so that I could literally stand up here and rip a page out and wad it up. We don't have smoke detectors in here. And light it on fire. Just so you could see the... So you could be appalled that a preacher would burn the Bible? Yeah. It's what we do figuratively nearly every day. But you know what that doesn't change? God's word. Verse 32. Write it all down again. He wrote some more. He added some stuff. Mainly this part about Jehoiakim. And then 2,600 years later, here we have it. What Jeremiah dictated and Baruch wrote down. Where's Jehoiakim? I don't see him. Where's Jerusalem? Where's Israel as it was at that time? We don't see it. Where's God? Uh, He's on his throne. Where's God's word? Right here where it's always been. Jehoiakim's stunt did nothing to stop God or his word. These chapters 1 through 25, what we have today, God's word is eternally permanent. It is powerfully true and it is eternally permanent. It will not change. It will not pass away. The grass withers and the trees trees fade, but the, the flowers fade. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God does not. It stands forever. 
And here we sit, the, the, the beneficiaries of the permanence of God's word and the recipients of the warning of if we ignore it. We still learn today of God's judgment on rebellion. We still learn today from Jeremiah, from older texts, from newer texts, of his mercy and grace for repentance. If the Lord should tarry for another 2,500 years before he comes back to take his children home, they will still be teaching Jeremiah. There will be a hologram of a preacher, or whatever they're going to do in 2,500 years, preaching this text, telling the people that God still judges, God still has grace and mercy for the repentant, and God's word still stands because it still will. Let us not be like the people, the officials, or the king and his servants. When we hear God's word, let us respond as that word commands. And that command may be action, may be repentance, may be love, may be giving, may be sacrifice, may be any number of things. But let us respond as it commands. Not be passive nor apathetic, not be fearful but unrepentant, and not be stiff-necked and rebellious. Let us be obedient. And our first obedience is God calling us to repent and believe on Jesus for salvation. He makes clear that our salvation is not won by works, it is won by faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. Repentance for our sin and following him. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can believe about the sin being bad. We can believe that God gives us this, uh, uh, the gift of salvation, but until our faith for that salvation is in Christ and not in ourselves, we've not experienced it because he set it up a certain way, and we must be obedient to that. So this morning, you have a next step to take. A step where you take up your cross. Your, you leave your life and you follow Jesus. You give it all up for him. You repent of your sin. You turn from yourself and you turn to Jesus and in obedience, you are baptized. In obedience, you submit to God. In obedience, you conform your life to him. In obedience, you join a local church, maybe this one. I saw and shared this week, and let me see, hopefully I can find it quickly, a good definition of what it is to join a church, to be a member of a church. Joining the church is not merely about having names on a membership role, nor is it simply about who gets to vote in church meetings. But rather, church membership is a commitment by the congregation to live out God's vision for the church, I would say God's commands for the church also, in all the one another commands of the New Testament. When you join a church, you are submitting to the command of unity, of being a part of the one another, love one another, submit to one another, correct one another, uplift one another, sharpen one another, all the one another commands of being a part of the church. Will you be obedient today? If you will, share it with us. 
Write it on the connection card on the back how you're going to be obedient. Come and pray with one of us. I'll be up here at the front to my right, Chelsea to my left. Two of our deacons, Lee and Kirk, will be in the back. Justin will be in the back as well. There are opportunities for you to pray with somebody, to share your decision with somebody. If you're online, message us. Let us know how today you are being obedient. This message was for you. All of you, each of you. What will you do with God's message to you today? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you speak, you work, you, that your word is powerfully true and permanently eternal. God, that we are still preaching Jeremiah's message today because your message of repentance and judgment are still accurate and applicable. Your message of mercy and grace is seen at the cross. And your message that you never fail and your word never fails still brings comfort and obedience today. God, may we respond to your message to us in obedience today. May we not passively ignore and not care. May we not be fearful yet unrepentant. And Lord, please, please, may we not respond by being stiff-necked and rebellious. But may we turn to you and say, yes, Lord, to whatever it is you command. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we stand and as we worship, you be obedient to the Lord this morning as he commands.